Hey everyone, this podcast is part of Story Mode, the podcast network of Gamefully Unemployed. You can support us and gain access to other great exclusive podcasts at patreon.com slash gamefully unemployed. That's patreon.com slash G-A-M-E-F-U-L-L-Y unemployed, which is spelled like it sounds. After last episode, I think I'm going to have to eat Taco Bell today. And I'm not looking. I know I know the path that it's going to take me down. I can see my future. It doesn't matter. It's unavoidable. Um, I guess this is my way of starting the episode. Oh, was that, that going to be in the show? <laughs> I don't know. It's up to our editor. I hope she keeps it in. We uh, because, you know. That's that's podcast magic right there, right? For those who went a week since listening to the last episode, this is part four of the series we're doing about why modern blockbusters are in many ways hollow and boring for uniquely yeah. uniquely modern reasons. But we made a comparison to, we referenced Taco Bell because it's it is very easy for someone to say, well, if you know, I can make a taco better than that. And it's like, yes, you can, but you cannot make a billion tacos like that every day and have them all exactly the same consistency, the same, you know, spice level, the same, everything at every location, whether you're eating them in New York or Tokyo, um, like the challenge is different. So we can sit here and say, well, I could tell a better story than this dumb movie that just just came out. It's like, yeah, but can you wrangle 5,000 people working in 12 different companies (laughs) around the world right uh and make and make something coherent when you're having to get input from you know producers marketing the stars you know the the, all these different logistical things in your way and and still make your deadline get it out on time and have a steady stream of these crowd pleasers where everyone has to make a billion dollars worldwide can you do that we we get it we do. We, we're criticizing Taco Bell as if it's something that you know our our grandma made in the kitchen, uh, and those are two totally different things. We do. We get it. Right. But it's. But I do want to point out that there is still a problem um, with big budget movies that is unique, and I I wanted to lay down some numbers uh, real quick. Uh, the first number being ninety four million dollars. That is the budget of the last Lord of the Rings. Now, this is a series that at that point was highly anticipated. Studios were like, yes, Peter Jackson, make it for as much as you want. The first movie did very well. $93 million. That was in 2001, right? No, sorry. Fellowship of the Ring is in 2001. Um, So I assume it was about 2003. Yes. For Return of the King. Um you cut to The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey, that is 2012. That movie cost $180 million. Uh, cut to now, Avengers Endgame, that movie cost $356 million. And that's the cost they're telling us about. That's not marketing. That's, that's not the hidden costs. That's what they want us to know it costs. Um, and in fact, I looked this up. Since 2010, 
um, it's more recent than I thought. There has been a sudden uptick in the average production budget of movies, which went from about thirty million to the average now being around fifty million. And again, that's the average. Um, the for adventure movies that has gone up again in two thousand ten from about sixty million to about a hundred to a hundred and twenty million uh, in two thousand eighteen. So there has been something that's happened very recently where movies are now costing way more money uh and that makes them you know that makes them scarier to make i would say and they have to make back a lot more money they have to be global yeah and big studios are releasing a lot fewer movies than they used to it's fewer bigger movies you're seeing the same thing in the world of mainstream video games like what they call triple a games they are the production cost is like hyperinflation on that side, keeping up with graphics demands and a lot of things that they assume audiences want because it's weird. Not we're not going to spend this episode talking about video games, but like the people are playing Fortnite, which just looks like a game from 15 years ago. Um, and in the world of movies, you're in a situation where basically every it's now the norm that every scene has an effects shot. If you're you're doing any kind of a big blockbuster movie, like even if it's two characters talking in a park, you'll see like where they literally changed the setting of the scene just digitally where they decided, Oh, we'd rather this be take place at night in an alley. And you you can tell some of the reshoots for um, justice league. Like you can tell they, they flip day to night or vice versa. Then they just did it in the computer. And it's just normal that every scene has an effects shot. And that effects shot still has to be rendered. I know that it seems like special effects are easy these days. I'm telling you, they are not. There's still a ton of work somebody has to do. It's a ton of rendering time of computers, ton of staff time. All this stuff is, this is the work of artists working very, very hard. And for some reason, it got to the point where it's been normalized that this is what movies look like and that this is what audiences demand. Now, I suspect that this is movie studio heads in America and Hollywood saying this is what audiences in China and Europe and the rest of the world demand. Because again, now that's where a lot of your grosses are coming from and they demand big CGI spectacle I would like to say that's misunderstanding what people like about these movies. And I would like to see them try it without that. Um, Yeah. Well, I think soon enough, because there's a whole thing where China is making their own movies for themselves. Um, There's been cases like of Chinese audiences calling out pandering from the U S. So I do think there's going to be a point where the United States, our, our, our studios are going to have to think about maybe uh, backing down from this process, making movies cheaper. You're seeing it in both thriller and horror movies um, since the 2000s have actually gone down. They were about 30 million budgets for both, and now they're about 10 million. And you kind of kind of see that in how experimental horror has gotten. Uh and how, how like horror has actually gotten really good lately. I think part of it's because they just have more wiggle room. They're making more mid budget films 
where they can be more experimental and they can say like we don't this doesn't have to win the entire globe you know uh whereas right now still hollywood and big budgets are way too concerned about making movies for everybody because they can't afford not to yeah and it's a weird thing you see this with corporations a lot of times where you get into a mode where a lot of people you even see it with like in governments and in militaries where the established power players are kind of protecting each other like there's people whose job it is to hire out special effects there's producers there's all these many many people involved in the process and they want to continue to have jobs so the idea of like well making a movie where the credits at the end don't take 15 minutes to run because you had (laughs) yeah Yeah. it's like well those are all jobs those are all people who you know you're making a movie that doesn't that only needs 25 people to make it that makes just as much money like paranormal activity it's like well we don't want that future where we're making a bunch of small movies because you've got all these, you have entire industries now based around the idea that this blockbuster is going to have whatever, 2000 effects shots. I I don't know how many there actually are, but where you don't even create a costume for, for Tony Stark. Like you just draw painted on him in CGI. Now, like he just walks around with tennis balls taped to his body and and that's it. Like you don't even have the, the costume or you just have somebody digitally, add it to them right and that that's way more jobs like you said the people who have to work on tony stark's outfit uh digitally is is it's way more complex um and it means that it's more people making these decisions as opposed to a single costume designer who's like i want this this and this it comes down to committees of people who are like we want this we want tony stark to look exactly like this we need iron man to look like this because we're already making the toys uh we're already doing the the cgi and previs yeah and you just used a word there that that they're not the the prevision the we're going to walk through this it's complicated because i think the under if you didn't know anything about how movies are made and you only know from like watching movies about making movies you would assume that it starts with a script because how can you do any of the other stuff if you don't have a script and it's like well but if you sit down and think about it the idea that you're going to trust the next marvel blockbuster to some screenwriter who's probably drunk like for that guy to, you don't know what he's going to turn out with yeah. turn up with it's like that's not how it works you you know there's certain elements you want and some of the of the things you're doing like you, you're if you're convinced, if it's part of the culture that every movie has to be bigger in not just spectacle but in scale, where you're literally saying, "Okay, this has got to have like a planet-wide battle." Like we're going to make a movie about Aquaman, a freaking superhero who who talks to fish, but it's got to have like a Lord of the Rings scale battle underwater with thousands of rendered characters. And once you've decided that this is what movies look like, well, guess what? You have to start doing pre-production work on that battle scene years before you have a script. If you know right. that you want that scene, and so we're going to walk through the process a little bit, but it creates this creates this very jumbled creative process where 
you're not doing things in the order you would think. It's the what it, what our first point here it comes down to is that movies have become bigger than any of the people making the movies. Um, they are economies and we this has happened for a while the lord of the rings when they moved into an area to film they would literally change the economy of that that area uh it's they hire so many people they have so many people behind them and so much money at stake that they can't just have a single writer or director play out their vision yeah, and if you're it's, if you've created a situation where it's normal to go to the studio and say I need two hundred and fifty million dollars to make a blockbuster. By the way, the Tomorrow War, the internet is claiming that movie cost two hundred million dollars to make. Man, it looks like that is a bummer. It looks like it cost twenty, and that they wasted a lot of the twenty. But right. if you've normalized anybody who's worked in a corporation where you've had to request budgets, the idea of having to go down or go backward in budget is not really a thing. You you always want to be expanding what you're doing or what your department does and how many people you have. Like that's just the way it works. You want you want to you don't ever want to have to be tightening the belt or if you do you have to you know, make it clear like well we can't do as much for this. So once it became normal to say okay, 250 million dollars is what it costs to make one of these movies, as a director you don't ever want like less money, you, you know, if you've been put in charge of making Captain America four or whatever one it would be now, uh, right. you, you want to be able to go back and say, okay, well, we've, we now need 20% more than last time. You know, the star is going to cost more. We got to offer pay raises to all the co-stars and all that. And then of course it's got to be bigger. It's always got to be bigger. Right. But um, once you go to that scale though, the idea of this being somebody's like vision is completely gone. Yeah, we don't have. This is why we don't have a Spielberg type director anymore. The best we have are people like J.J. Abrams, who you can identify visually a little bit, but the the people working, making the biggest films right now, they're more like company people than like creatives. Um, which isn't to say that they don't have good ideas or they aren't creative. It's just that their talents, part of their talents now, are working with a giant corporation to play out what they need to happen. Um, it's very much, it's, it's why we're now seeing so many indie directors go from making like one comedy to making, say, Jurassic World. Because the importance of the director and the importance of the writers have like diminished because the movies are too big. Uh, they they just need someone who will carry out very specific things. The the news that just happened was um, what's her name Lucretia I think Mar- Martell I'm probably botching her name. Um, uh, a filmmaker who was uh, uh, approached to direct um, the new Black Widow turned it down because she was told. Don't worry about the action scenes. We will take care of that by Marvel. Because what they were doing, and this is probably um, a bigger criticism, is that Marvel is looking for more diverse filmmakers, which is a good idea. But because it's Marvel, they don't really give them a lot to do. They tell them, all right, we want you to direct this movie. And by direct, we mean you get to work with Scarlett Johansson in these scenes. Um, That's it. 
Like, here's the script. Here's what's going to happen. Here's how the action scenes already look. We just need you to direct the actors, which is not, for a lot of directors, not what they want to do. A lot of directors want to make the movie look and feel like a movie that they are creating that's coming out of their head. That's not what Marvel needs from their directors anymore. They just need someone to be on set to talk to the actors and get them to say the lines. So when we talk, you mentioned that they say these directors, okay, well now a lot of the action sequences are already done or already being worked on by another team in another building in another part of the world. You used earlier the phrase previs, pre-visualization. Can you explain, I don't know if we can include the links to the articles, our sources in the description of the podcast, if so, or on Patreon, that may help people. Because this information is all out there. Like the way Marvel and Disney with all of their blockbusters, the way they make these movies and how the previs process works. The Okay, so I'm sure this happened before this moment, but when previs first like uh, became the thing it it needs to be is the making of um jurassic park i would say um where they literally did they they to make jurassic park they originally hired a stop motion animator to do the effects of the dinosaurs what happened is of course cgi got so good that they were like let's do this instead they in turn they actually used the same stop motion techniques to do previs which is to map out a scene before they actually film it. And the reason that's important is because when you're working with complex CGI or complex stunts, you need to have it all kind of locked down so that the people who are working on the effects can work on those effects the same time that they're shooting the movie. In the case of Jurassic Park, um, that had like probably only like a handful of effects shots it was a pretty quaint process uh, that that they could they could sort of you know they they could take their time on. It wasn't as stressful. And then, as you've already said today, there's so many effect shots now. Like you look at Avengers, there's probably an effect shot in every scene. Um, the Star Wars prequels. I know Star Wars Episode One. There's only one shot that isn't an effect shot. Um, because you have characters who are freaking robots or aliens, the Hulk. The Hulk just has scenes in like a diner where he's just talking, and that's an effects shot because he's the Hulk. And that means they have to start previs ridiculously early. Marvel has gotten to a point, according to this one article, that they previs two thirds of their movie. Um, and at this point, because th- there's so much to do. They don't have time to wait until they have a writer, a cinematographer, or a director half the time. And that's where we get to the why Marvel is like, don't worry about action scenes to a director. Yeah, and also uh, why their movies tend to look the same. And there's not yeah. it tends to not be a distinct visual style for the most part. I know that Thor Ragnarok had you know like a, a more whimsical look or whatever, but for the most part, they want a consistent product. And so the idea of there being again, I 
there are many, many artists. I don't want to say there's no artistry. There are many artists involved. The costumers are artists. Everyone working on the effects are artists. All the people doing the storyboarding, all of that stuff. These are talented people working very hard, and they, for the most part, will never be famous for the work they do. But in terms of the story and story structure and character work, things like that, you are, if you're able to bring out genuine character moments or genuine like drama out of this process, it's almost by accident. <laughs> right. It, yeah. Yeah. Because it, it, it's why so many care, like why Edgar Wright or Patty Jenkins, like we learn about them dropping off of movies. Uh, it's because people who really want to like, have control over a movie jump into a marvel film and they're like i'm sorry you you want me to just do this no never mind and they they say creative differences they move on you know yeah and i think marvel would say we are not going to leave it to chance that he's going to turn in you know because edgar wright's made some movies that only grossed like 25 million dollars like this is ant-man you can't that can't happen this cannot be this cannot be a, a swing and a miss. We have to have a baseline of delight that we know we are bringing to moviegoers. There has to be a baseline of action and of uh, you know the the witty lines or whatever, and that we yeah. know we have to get that. And so all of this stuff that we know we have has to be in there, including the hundreds and hundreds or thousands of effects shots. That stuff you can't snap your fingers and make that happen. But at the same time. You cannot ask Edgar Wright to work on this movie for four years. You're going to get him right. for a few months, and then he'll come back and do the reshoots. But the way they do this process, it is very much an assembly line. But whatever persists of like an individual creative voice or through line is almost a miracle if you find it in there. Like anything that's distinct, when you see this process described and you see why so many people just can't do it, this is why it's... It used to be we got excited when they would say... Because there used to be this, and there still is, this pipeline of indie movie gets a ton of buzz and then or gets a ton of award buzz and then the director and usually the star also gets awarded with a Marvel movie. You know, like Brie Larson did Room, this incredibly powerful, small, contained story, but her reward was she gets to be Captain Marvel. You know, and Colin Trevorrow, his reward for making the small, quirky movies, he gets Jurassic Park. Like, that's the way it works. But then when you watch it, and or even the guy who made the new Spider-Man movies made this very tight thriller called Cop Car. You can watch on Netflix has Kevin Bacon in it as the bad guy. And it's incredible. And as charming as the Spider-Man movies are, there's no hint of this guy's voice in it. Yes. Like, cause it's, cause that's not the way this works. Cop car is a movie that we, has like three actors. You know, it's this tight taut thriller. It's like 85 minutes long. It's like, okay, you did that. And so the pipeline is now you are working in a sausage factory. <laughs> you are now. You, and you, as movies, do this more and more we're, we're losing a lot of those directors like i i get that there's i now get sad when i hear that a director i liked on an indie film is doing one of these because like if you go back and you think like i remember the joy of hearing peter jackson was making lord of the rings 
because it was like, oh my God, they're giving that to Peter Jackson. And then you watch those movies and you're like, this feels like a Peter Jackson film, but it's got an, a, a huge budget. That's or, or Sam Raimi with Spider-Man. Those feel like Sam Raimi films. Uh, that was the joy of that. That has been completely stripped away in this new process, I think. Yeah, because even if they brought either of us in and said, we're going to give you as much creative freedom as possible, as if either of us actually know how to make a movie. But it, you think about automatically the restraints you're under just from the fact that you're part of this massive universe of other movies. That it's like, oh, well, right. now there's going to be a spinoff TV show. And then they have, I think you say elsewhere here, that they've, they have like an entire department just to keep track of story continuity because you can't... You can't destroy a building in your movie that still exists in the TV show they're shooting elsewhere or right. or that they're about to shoot and that they know they want it to take place. And like, I want to destroy Stark Tower or whatever. It's like, well, no, the new uh, Tony Stark's, the young, young Tony Stark we're shooting takes place in that uh, right. about his young clone. It all takes place in that building. It's like, no, you can't. So every single step you take in terms of any kind of permanent change to the universe, any kind of character, permanent character change or anything like that, that interferes with the other things they want to do with the process or with the business side, they're going to shut down. Yeah. They're, I think people are going to, are, are probably already thinking about, um, what about James Gunn? What about Taika Watiti? What about some of the people who do leave their mark? And my answer to that is, or, or Shane Black is another one. All of those movies are unique in their writing. Marvel is great if you're a certain type of artist. Um, in that case, someone who can do witty, fun dialogue that fits with their universe. And you can leave your mark. You can even push... Like James Gunn objectively created a new aspect to the Marvel Universe. He world-built uh, the, the, the like cosmic side of things. But it all still kind of fits into it, and they all have they still have the action scenes that they need to have to have someone who really wants to subvert it, you're just not going to find that anymore also they someone didn't... like Edgar Wright is a very visual director. his editing style is very specific, so it makes sense like that he would drop off of Ant Man because he probably wanted that movie to look a certain way. He probably wanted to do really quick camera edits, really weird effects. And they were like, that doesn't work with what we need to do. Uh, that's the difference, I think. And let's note that they gave James Gunn a, a franchise that no one had ever heard of. Right. Guardians of the Galaxy was not a big thing. I had never heard of that in my entire life before they gave it to him. They kind of put that out there like it was totally disconnected from the rest of the universe at the time. They didn't give him Captain America 3. They gave him this other weird thing to see what happened with it, and it, you know, it, it came off. And that's great. That's great that they're willing to do that. But it's almost like as time goes on and there's more and more stuff, and, and this is part of the problem with consolidation, the fact that everything is owned by Disney now. Yeah. As there's more and more stuff, and it's, it's going to all seem very, it's all got to be somewhat consistent or whatever, it only gets harder because the first Iron Man was not made under these constraints. The first Iron Man was like, well, nobody cares about this character. Robert Downey Jr. Like just got out of jail. It's like, 
<laughs> yeah, it was a thing where they kind of were taking a risk and trying to bring back this franchise that, uh, you know, that people had kind of stopped caring about. But you, it wouldn't look like that today. Like, that was a very loose process. It is not anymore. As time goes on, it becomes more and more rigid because there's just more and more at stake and more and more people involved and so on. Right. It's it's a big problem of balance, I think, is that I don't need to go back to the days where I'm, a director's a tyrant. And in fact, a lot of the directors that we think of that way, we often give them too much credit. Like, you look at a film like The Shining... And it's like, oh, look at these, look at how amazing, like, everybody knows what the hotel looks like. And they're like, Kubrick's a genius. And it's like, actually, he has a set designer and a set designer he trusted to make it look the way he, that set designer. Like, it's it's a back and forth. There are talented people directors go to and they say, I want this feeling and now you do the rest. It's the fact that the balance is so off now that the people who are in charge of making the entire movie don't really have a say of how those movies look visually and it makes this sameness and as we talked about with the previous it creates a problem where like the the actual action feels so generic and that brings Um, us neatly into this next point because people yeah people complain today about well i hate there's too much cgi in movies i hate cgi and then someone else will rebut well, actually, Mad Max Fury Road had a ton of CGI in it. You just, a lot of you didn't notice because of where they inserted it. And a lot of it was so that stunt people wouldn't die. Like, yeah, it's, it was like to get rid of wires and stuff. Yeah, there's tons of effects shots. And there's stuff that they had to shoot and they changed backgrounds and things like that. Or they composited in. It's just you didn't notice it. The thing that you hate when you say you hate too much CGI is the thing we're about to discuss. Because, again, it has to do with the fact that the CGI, the all CGI action sequences are almost are really not made by the same crew that makes the scenes where it's just Natasha and the other characters of Black Widow, where they're sitting there, David Harbour's character, are just talking to each other. The scene where they're falling out of the sky from a giant floating city or whatever the hell that was, like those were two completely different production teams, and this the latter was started long before they even knew what this movie was going to be about or what its themes were going to be, probably. Right, and a lot of that time, like I've 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 noticed a running problem because we have some great action right now. Again, Mad Max Fury Road, the John Wicks. But when it comes to mainstream, there's this weird, like, they, they seem to forget that, like, CGI is an action, if that makes sense, which is like Infinite, for example. In the movie Infinite, Mark Warburg jumps his motorcycle off a cliff onto a plane, and we're supposed to be impressed, even though that shot is 100% CGI. And so, like, it's this weird area where it's like where we don't giant monsters cgi doesn't impress us anymore so it either has to be a really cool idea um or it has to be just like really beautiful or cool like uh, there has to be something that stands out about the cgi if you're just cgiing a car stunt you have to ask the question well why not just actually do a car stunt because that's why we watch car stunts (laughs) 
um, the the new F- Fast and Furious. Fast and Furious is very known for doing practical effects, but the new one they bring them into space, and so it's a car in space, which once again asks the question like, well, why, why are are we supposed to be impressed by this? You didn't actually do it. Black Widow had the same problem where Black Widow is a character who's known for like a lot of fight scenes. Like whenever they do Black Widow or Captain America, they have a stunt person actually perform stunts. When Black Widow ends with like her skydiving um, behind an explosion and it's all just CGI people, like what is the point? What's the point of an action sequence that's just all CGI at that point? Um, it also feels like th- because there's no, because these are previs, um, we, we kind of talked about this is the idea of movies like kind of resorting to just people shooting each other. I got that impression from Godzilla versus Kong where they just kind of like beat at each other because there's no director who's being like, why, why not make this interesting? Why not? Again, someone like Edgar Wright would put their own stamp on an action sequence as opposed to something that was just previsd ahead of time, they've suddenly become more and more generic and and just kind of people wailing on each other. Uh, you pointed out in these notes that like movies don't stop, have action scenes and continue. At least not good movies. Those things need to be tied together in an interesting way. But when they're not telling, making the directors able to do that then it just becomes everybody sort of stopping, doing an action scene, finding an excuse for them to talk, an action scene, and so on. Right, and there's scenes in Black Widow where it's not even clear if Scarlett Johansson was on set when they filmed it. Like, it's so easy to just CGI her face onto a stunt double, and the stunt double is themselves just in a green room hanging from a wire. The, The you... It's like, okay, here's the talking scenes that this crew filmed, and then let's cut to a scene where she's jumping off a thing that's exploding. It's hard to connect those two because they're literally not connected. (laughs) Whereas, you know, if to say this whole idea that the scale has to be huge is what I think is a mistake. I think it's incorrect. I, mm-hmm. When you look at the ending of like the end of the, of the first Terminator movie, which again I get that was a movie that was made for like one million dollars in nineteen eighty four, but the ending is one woman in like a factory crawling away from a crawling robot, and that's that's your climax, like that's your climax, and right. now it's like well no, it's got to be the scale's got to be big, it's got to be big, 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 it's got to be a bigger floating thing bigger than the helicarrier bigger than this other thing it's like it's got to be worldwide or or universe wide or it's got to be a huge battle scene because once they had the technology to render you know 10,000 soldiers like there was these there was several years in the 2000s where every movie had to have like a big CGI battle scene where there's just thousands of soldiers and you could they're using that same software that you can tell it's the same software because they they look the same oh yeah like the way the way the characters kind of flow into each other once they perfected the CGI building smashing or building falling over and again it's the same software you can watch it whether you're watching a building fall over in Transformers or in that Roland Emmerich end of the world movie, 2012 or whatever, 
or in Godzilla vs. Kong, it's like you can see it. It's the same software rendering the breaking glass, rendering the debris. And the idea that now that that's possible, one, we need that in all of our movies or else the audience won't feel excitement. It has to be big citywide destruction. And two, because of that, we have to start rendering and building that four years ago. <laughs> like we have yeah. to start now long before we've hired a director long. If we know we want another captain America and we've decided, okay, it's got to have an ending where, uh, whatever New York is being destroyed by a giant robot. You got to start drawing the robot. Now it doesn't, if you say, well, yeah, but they don't, they're not having to build a scale model of the city, like an independence day. It's all done in computers. Trust me. That's just as hard. They still have to build it. It just has to be built digitally. It's just as difficult. It still takes years to do. They have to paint it oh, yeah. frame by frame. There's so, this. I love in movies whenever they show in movies how movies are made, and they like hit a few buttons on a computer to do like rotoscoping or something, right. where it's a process where someone has to in real life physically trace every frame uh, to to CGI someone or to 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 like green screen someone out. Uh, it's it's hilarious how movies make making movies look so easy. So that's why they can go to a director who they're bringing in to make Black Widow two years after they started rendering like that final scene and all that, and can say to them, "Well, don't worry about the action. We on the story team are going to like come up with broad arcs and broad beats. It's going to happen." We already know we've got this big spectacular thing, and we know that earlier in the movie we've got this big prison escape scene. We're we're rendering that stuff now, like, and then we will paint in the actors later. <laughs> however, they do it, we'll capture their performances down the line, or the mocap, or however they do it. You, but you're you're still going to have the freedom to work with the story team to do dialogue parts and all that. And you get individual great moments of conversations. Like these are great actors. They're some of the most charismatic people on earth. And that stuff is still there. Paul, yeah. Paul Rudd is still great. Robert Downey Jr. is still great. It's just that the, the, they expect you when there's nothing coherent with the action that they expect you to feel like, Oh, that's, that's Tony Stark out there in the middle of that CGI battle. I, I personally don't feel it as much as in like Iron Man three, where he like stripped it down to where it's him having to fight these people with stuff he bought at home Depot. Right. That felt because, more like, because it it's letting Robert Downey Jr. Act in the middle of the actual action. He's actually doing it. Right. And that, and a lot of that is because you have someone like Shane black who actually does have a background in action. And I think that's an important thing to talk about, which is that, Marvel does have every they will bring in directors or like they like the way they do their action is starting from a good place, at least where it's all looks the same. But the original conception of the action started in a good, good like it started with talented people knowing what they were doing. And I think like like Spielberg on Ready Player One. Spielberg is Spielberg. He knows how to do CGI in action. Or like James Cameron with Avatar. These are people who are able to control a set that's based around digital effects like this and still make their mark. Shane Black, you know, like uh, that, that scene where Tony Stark is using like 
stuff around the house that is completely devoid of CGI and it's a very smart move. Uh, the thing that baffles me is a movie like Jurassic World because Jurassic World um, is the first of a franchise, a franchise that's going to be huge. And if you look into how Colin Trevorrow got the job, he had just made a movie called Safety Not Guaranteed. Um, and Frank Marshall, who's one of the producers, um, he was the producer, producer of you know a lot of Spielberg stuff, uh, he originally went to Brad Bird. And they were thinking of Brad Bird for either uh, a, Diz, a, a Lucasfilm, like a Star Wars, or Jurassic World. Brad Bird is a director with a long history of understanding movies like this big budget effects films brad bird um originally was like i don't have time to do this because i'm making the movie tomorrowland you know that classic film that was definitely worth him uh not doing a Jurassic park I had forgotten over. about its existence until just now <laughs> and so brad bird was like can i bring in this guy named colin trevorrow to stand in for me for pre-production uh because i won't be able to be there and they were like who is colin trevorrow he showed them the movie safety not guaranteed which brad bird just happened to like um to to quote uh frank marshall he said so we screened the movie safety not guaranteed and i kind of saw what brad was thinking so he's lukewarm and they they this guy had made one indie comedy and they just gave colin trevorrow jurassic world and why that matters is because Jurassic Park is a movie that's all about tension. It's a horror movie about dinosaurs. Yes. It is. You go back and you watch it. You watch the scenes, CGI or or characters, any any scale. Steven Spielberg is crafting a beautiful world of tension. Uh, Jurassic World has no tension. It is a tensionless film. Uh, you watch the Indominus Rex getting out scenes. It's shot badly. They're, 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 they don't know where to put the camera. They don't know how to edit it. It's, it's fun at times, but it's completely devoid of the tension or, or, the, or just any of the talent that you see in the first Jurassic Park or even the third Jurassic Park, uh, which isn't a good movie, but the people making it still understood what they were making. And it's because they brought in this comedy director. I assume told him, don't worry about the scenes with the dinosaurs, just do the dialogue stuff. And so there's a lot of quippy scenes of characters talking back and forth, real funny to each other. And then the moment there's a, it's kind of like what we talked about with the ghostbusters where it's like, it's just, they forgot to actually give it like the original ghostbusters hasn't, atmosphere to it that then the the remake doesn't have and that's sort of the same problem with that all because they they bait they started this franchise with an indie director who had made one comedy because they knew that it didn't really matter they didn't need someone who could really think about the dinosaur scenes because presumably those dinosaur scenes were already in the process of getting made Right, and it's also why I think like Chris Pratt's character, there's just not a lot of character to him. It's right; it's just funny stuff. You kind of like, yeah, it's just quippy, generic action man. Where again, I, 
we keep bringing up Mad Max Jerry Road as like a positive example. I know that is a unique circumstance. That was a case where he spent decades trying to get that movie made. They didn't want to make it. It also didn't necessarily make back, back its budget once you add in all the other costs. But that's a case where every action, every stunt ties into who the characters are. Like it's really everything ups the stakes for like who the characters are personally. And if you, if that sounds too artsy for you, anyone listening to this, there are tons of YouTube videos breaking down everything about how like the action ties into, you know, Max's level of trust with Furiosa and everything they do, like all of these stunts ties into where they are, like in their arc, it, it all ties together. All the action ties into character very, very well. Uh, the first Matrix film, I feel like, does this very well for the most part, where the action and like what Neo is doing is tied to like where he is in his arc, in his character, and what he's learning about himself. Like it all translates to how he, the things he does, and how these action scenes play out. It's never just spectacle. But if you're kind of doing this with an assembly line process where it's like the audience wants a certain amount of large scale spectacle. And so we're going to figure out that we got a team of people figuring out like what, what's the big spectacle in this movie. And we've decided that in Captain America four, it's going to be uh, a giant crocodile attacking Los Angeles. Then at some point a writer's going to get brought in. It's like, okay, you're going to write the new Captain America because you had a success, a successful indie feature. Now, what we know is that it ends with a giant crocodile attacking LA. Right. You have to whatever you have total freedom, but you have to arrive there. Right. And I know that can't be easy. I know I know these people are all trying their very best. When given a chance to make a small movie, they made delightful small movies. They know how to do it. They know how to get great performances out of actors. But if it seems like, well, it's not, you know, when you watch well, Scarlett Johansson like do wire work and kind of float down through CGI debris at the end of the movie, I don't consider it to be one of her finer performances. It's like, well, she wasn't there when that was shot. It doesn't. It doesn't help their careers. Um, the, the, the director of Thor The Dark World talked a lot about how it, like, yeah, it was not a fun shoot. He said he had, he had freedom while shooting, and then in post, the movie was taken away from him. Um, I think about someone like Josh Trank, who did um, that movie... Um, Chronicle. Chronicle, yeah. And then went on to do Fantastic Four and tried to creatively push back to such an amount that the movie is a disaster. They had to reshoot a lot. Josh Trank famously like hit on set. Um, is he a good director? Is he a good person? I don't know. Um, Colin Trevorrow is another case. Colin Trevorrow was going to get a Star Wars. He did good with the Jurassic World as far as they concerned. He made them their money. They gave him a Star Wars and they fired him when he started getting too demanding because the fact of the matter was... Nobody was like, we need a Colin Trevorrow Star Wars. That's not why they hired him. They hired him because he was going to do what they say. And the moment he became a problem, they got rid of him. Because why, why, why not? Like he, he, people are going to see Star Wars. It doesn't matter who's making them. And so anyone who's listened to all of the episodes in the series up till now, Everything we've pointed out previously about like logical inconsistencies, inconsistencies in the universe, 
do you see how it's almost impossible to keep that stuff straight? Like, you know, you watch the trailer for Rogue One and 75% of those shots are not in the final movie because they, the way Disney does it with Marvel and with Star Wars films both, on top of everything we've described here, they will then go into test screenings and then they will reshoot literally half the movie. Like, it's just understood that the stars have to come back and will have to redo and they they can just digitally tweak the scene where... I think there's a shot in the Rogue One trailer where she's like on a catwalk and a TIE fighter like rises up and is about to shoot her. I think that's right. just not in the movie or vice versa. Yeah. It's it's like the, it was just something that was there and it was taken out because it didn't test well or something. Through all of that with all of these cooks in the kitchen and all of these people wanting their say and trying to make sure that no matter what happens, this movie has to meet this baseline where 500 million worldwide is a disaster, you want a billion, 1.5 or 2 billion is even better, but you absolutely can't like dip below half a billion dollars worldwide. Like the idea of making a thing that has to sell half a billion dollars worth of tickets at a minimum or else people get fired, you become so cautious. <laughs> And the yeah. idea that we cannot let the audience, like we mentioned previously, previous episodes, that they will not let the audiences feel sad for very long. You cannot have you know a, a character feel genuine emotion. We talked previously about how they will undercut scenes with humor, where if a, a scene of genuine emotion happens or genuine sadness, you'll have a little quip to bring a laugh in because they sat in a focus group. I do not doubt or test audience and watch the audience be sad for five minutes like, oh, they can't be feeling sadness while watching this, you know, we didn't had we haven't had a laugh or a positive reaction in a long time. Let's bring back Robert Downey Jr. or whoever and let him improvise here and we'll insert a shot. That'll that'll help relieve some of this tension. And I think that all comes down to this you have to have a product that is like consistent in happiness levels throughout, but it creates this very shallow end product. But I think it is a result of everything we've described here it go it passes through so many hands that there's almost no one person you can credit it to they know they can sort of get away with it all right um it's not just that the movies are bigger than the people making it it's that they're they're dealing exclusively with properties that are now bigger than them stuff like star wars stuff like jurassic park uh these things are Harry Potter. Like they, they're not taking these risks because they have to make it so big. They aren't taking these risks on anything new pretty much. And there's this built in fan base, uh, that we know is going to see it no matter what at this point. Uh, and I guess I want to, I want to get into that talking about the fandom. Yeah. I never want, I don't want to make it. I don't want to, I don't want to make anybody feel like it's the fault of fans because it's not the fault of fans. No, but it's the fault of the loudest fans because they see like the people who make the most noise on the internet, like in theory on earth, on a global scale, hardly anybody uses Twitter, but Twitter has an incredible impact on the world because every person who works in media at any level, every director, every writer, every executive, every producer, every actor, they are on Twitter. And 
you would be stunned by the effect of 50 mean tweets on how the next movie is getting made. Like there are literal reshoots that happen because people on YouTube, YouTubers, streamers, whoever made fun of a moment that 99% of the audience didn't have a problem with. But the ultra like angriest and in some cases the most toxic fans and we could we're going to wind up mentioning the Snyder cut here probably. Yeah. Wind up having an outsized impact because despite what we've just described, like you have with every corporation is incredibly eager to please. If you're trying to sell, you know, 4 billion burritos, you are desperate to find out what people want out of a burrito, you know, that only costs 59 cents. So it's not that corporations don't care. They do. It's that the thing they care about is like they're desperately trying to get signals from the consumers about what to give them, which is fine if you're making hamburgers or cars. If you're making art, that is a very different, different thing because in the world of art, I don't know who coined this phrase. It was probably someone awful. The audience doesn't know what they want until you give it to them. Yeah. The audience didn't know they wanted Star Wars. They wanted Flash Gordon. That was the movie they were trying to make. It turned out they couldn't get the rights to Flash Gordon, so they slapped together this knockoff Flash Gordon that is now called Star Wars. And now we we insist if you make more Star Wars, it has to have the same characters. It has to have the Force, has to have lightsabers, has to have TIE fighters. Mm-hmm. That's what the audience says. They are not correct about what they want. What they want is to feel the way they felt when those things were new. But getting that again won't make you feel that. Creators know that. Audiences don't. Audiences are wrong when they yell about what they want. I I need to jump to... This is a perfect transition to, I was going through uh, uh, Bob Iger's autobiography. He is the CEO of Disney. He was, he was the person who was in charge of the purchase of Lucasfilm, right? And we'll get into this more, but it, Star Wars was purchased from George Lucas <laughs> with a, a half promise that they were going to go with George Lucas's idea for new movies. Uh, George Lucas had, of course, pitched three movies uh, that were about midichlorians that uh, people have mocked. But for better or for worse, it was a continuation of George Lucas's idea for Star Wars, right? George Lucas then had to learn the hard way. They sent J.J. Abrams over to his house, and he was surprised to learn that they're not going with any of his ideas, right? They eventually showed A Force Awakens to George Lucas. And this is from the autobiography. Um, Bob Iger says he didn't hide his disappointment. There's nothing new, he said. In each of the films in the original trilogy, it was important to him to present new worlds, new stories, new characters, and new technologies. In this one, he said, there weren't enough visual or technical leaps forward. He wasn't wrong, but he he wasn't appreciating the pressure we were under to give ardent fans a film that felt quintessentially Star Wars. We'd intentionally created a world that was visually and tonally connected to the earlier films, to not stray too far from what people loved and expected. 
and George was criticizing us for the very thing we were trying to do. Now, that, I think, really sums up a problem between studios and fandom. And that is that they literally rejected the ideas of the guy who created Star Wars because they didn't think the fans would want that. Um, that seems so weird. Because I get the idea that George Lucas made the prequels and we all laughed at the prequels and maybe he's not the best person to know. But he had a, an idea for where the story, his story would continue. And they said, no, we're going to just do something that's more like Star Wars for our fans. And, and I think that's a big problem. And I get it because the loudest fans are the ones who are 40 years old and remember Star Wars being their entire childhood and wanting to feel like that again. But the idea that a 10 year old now cares who Harrison Ford is or Mark Hamill or Carrie Fisher right. is ludicrous. Like kids these days have moved on. They're playing Fortnite. They're doing other things. They're, they're watching anime. So if you want to capture a new generation, you would have to be willing to tell the loud, angry 40-year-old YouTubers with like all the Star Wars toys on their desks, like, no, we're doing something new or we're going right. to take, take – like we're not going to – it's not going to be the, another Death Star. It's not going to be – and they wound up basically doing a soft reboot of A New Hope in a way that makes no sense. Like they had to just erase – you know, it's like, oh, the Empire is back. They built an even bigger Death Star, and they even have to like make some self-referential references to it. It's like, oh, there's always yeah. a weak point in these things. You just got to find it. It's like you didn't have to. Is that how limited this universe is, where there's just a bunch of like round space stations with lasers that blow up right. planets? Like, Is that all this is? Does everything revolve around the Skywalker family? Really? Are you sure? It's a, it's a vast, you know, it should be a, this vast rich universe of possibilities that they weren't wrong that the worst and loudest fans would have screamed and yelled if they had just done something completely fresh i i have no doubt about it whether they had been like well you didn't you had a chance to finish han solo's story and what george lucas was saying is like no that story's been told that yeah. it, it's done the, the skywalker family saga is is over that story's been told move on to tell a new story and it's like, okay, as an artist expressing your art, artistic vision, that may be true, but as a part of a gigantic corporation making a product that is designed to sell merchandise, uh, you're wrong. No, you've got to have the, it's got to have stormtroopers. It's got to have all of this iconography that everybody's familiar with. It's got to have star destroyers, only bigger. It's got to have X-wing fighters. It's got to have hotshot pilot it's got to have all of those things you liked before only there'll be like a younger version and then we'll have the old people there too and by the time you've fulfilled all of those criteria you have boxed yourself into the point where it's like okay let's just literally remake the first star wars movie again yeah well yeah why not just say we're doing that like screw it uh, well you can't just reboot it because then there's no reason to have harrison ford in it Right. And and if, if people don't have Chewbacca, not not another character that makes them feel the way they felt the first time they saw Chewbacca. It has to be the actual Chewbacca, damn it. 
or else we're going to riot. And they're right. They they people would have yelled. It's the the worst people on but YouTube would have would have yelled at them. That's the thing is that you think about the Star Wars prequel, right? Everybody uh, hated it, or everybody was very vocal about that. There is now hardcore nostalgia for those movies because there were people who were children who watched those movies and didn't have the same problems. You know, they they just got more Star Wars. That's the Star Wars they grew up with. And now that's their nostalgia. And and that's what's like, I think we didn't understand at the time those came out. Uh, and we don't understand now is that like, it is whatever you like. It's what you said is that these kids, that's the that's what they got. And now that's their nostalgia. They didn't know they wanted it. But now there's people who look back at those films with, yeah, a lot of praise. They, they, they've, there's been like more of a movement that they're underrated. Um, and I think what's happening is they're not actually listening. There's, a, there's an article from Variety from 2010 that I really liked where they talk about something called Comic-Con False Positive, which is about how as Comic-Con got bigger, because, you know, it was originally a comic book convention, uh, and now it's not that. It's gigantic. Um, studios started screening movies there, and they got movies that they thought were going to be a big hit that turned out to be a bomb. Stuff like Jonah Hex or um, Watchmen, which I believe wasn't didn't succeed. I mean, you know, a lot of people like that movie. And it's because they showed it to all the hardcore fans, got the feedback from there. And as this weird symbiotic relationship happened with Comic-Con, um, these movies have gotten more and more oddly exclusive. There's an article in The Hollywood Reporter about this, about how like your average blockbuster fan, like you either need to watch 20 hours or plus, like 40 hours of Marvel content, or you're just not going to be part of that. Whereas there used to be standalone movies a lot more that weren't just obsessing with fandom. Uh, and, and, and so it's made, it's made blockbusters oddly inaccessible. And you think about future generations, it's like, why would they ever want to watch the middle of a series? You know, like a movie like Thor Ragnarok um, is a great movie, but if you watch it 100 years from now, if someone's like, you got to watch Thor Ragnarok, but first you got to watch 20 movies first. It's like, no, I guess I'll never see that. Yeah, there's no context uh, for anything that's happening there. Same thing if someone tried to watch like reruns of One Division twenty years from now. The way right. that, the way those those sitcoms that it was kind of satirizing, like those reruns that, that played for half a century after they aired. Like, is that show going to make any sense to someone who's right. not like in the moment keeping up with that ecosystem? But if you're trying to create stuff that appeals to that fan, which again, I keep using like the stereotype of the nerdy YouTuber who's just, you know, picks apart like they do like a, a reaction video after every episode airs and they're digging into the storylines and all that. And all of these creators, you've got quotes here, they admit that they watch that stuff and they conform to those criticisms, like they react to them. Even though, could, again, what percentage of the audience is like a loud, like middle-aged white guy on YouTube? It's it's not a right. lot. And you can see it's going to be confusing later. Like a character like Rose in um, The Last Jedi got so much fucking toxic bullshit. That actress, um, what's her name? Uh, Kelly Marie Tran, I believe. Yes. 
Um, and that they like it seemed like they actually listened to the fans and cut her out of the next one. They people got mad when um, Luke Skywalker throws away the lightsaber in that movie. So they add a scene where later in the third movie, Ray throws away her lightsaber. His ghost catches it and he says some joke of like, you'd never, never throw away your lightsaber. And these are moments that are responses to fan bases or like, like things on the internet that in 50 years, no one's going to know about. And it's just going to seem weird and disjointed. Um, People, people mocked um, Claire, the character Claire in Jurassic world for wearing high heels. So in the sequel, they do this big push in on her feet. Like, look, no heels. But we don't know. We don't know about that fan uh, reaction, or we won't. So it just seems like nonsense. Yeah, the third Star Wars movie. I, I listeners, I cannot remember the titles of these Star Wars sequel mm-hmm. because they're all so generic to me. Like Rise of Skywalker could either be the first or third, or the second. I think I know the second one is the Last Jedi because that's the one everybody's mad at. But I don't. Re- Which, yeah. So the yeah. the final one is it the Rise of Skywalker? That's the Rise of Skywalker. Then what's the Force f- Awakens, Last Jedi, I believe, and Rise of Skywalker? Okay, the Force Awakens and Rise of Skywalker. Those two titles are saying the same thing. This was, but anyway. So <laughs> in the third one, <laughs> if you tried to watch that trilogy thirty years from now, it would be so confusing what they were doing. Because you would not know about the the box office, the ecosystem, the backlash, the millions of YouTube videos screaming about The Last Jedi, the death threats, all the people made it got. You wouldn't know any of that. You would just see a second movie where Kylo Ren smashes his helmet to like symbolize that he's not going to be... He's never going to be Darth Vader. He has to be his own person. Like the, the helmet is gone. And in the third movie, he like glues it back together. Yeah. Almost immediately. <laughs> and puts it back on. It's like, well, what was that about? And in the second movie, they make the whole point, and we're rehashing a million YouTube videos, but you make the, you know, of the whole point of Rose's character is that she's not a force user. She's not a part of any uh, sacred family or powerful family in the universe. She's just an employee, a low-level employee on that ship, but she has a very strong sense of duty, and she winds up involved in the adventure just because of, through, like, force of will she like insists on coming along and then the whole theme of the movie is like these small people matter it's not just about this this one family it's it's not about what's in your blood it's about you know the force anybody can use the force and they set all that stuff up in the third movie they just throw it all in the trash it's like no it's all about the same the same family it's about palpatine skywalkers it's about all of this it's the same the same group of 12 people and their children and their parents and that's all the entire galaxy revolves around them it would be it would seem so weird if you don't know what happened that they were actually trying to make a movie on the fly again after so much of it had already been produced they're trying to slap together a movie that will address what everyone is mad about after the last movie and try to make some sense of they wind up cobbling together this movie in reshoots and in edits uh it's it's so bad for a, a thing you would ideally like people to still be watching a generation later. And once upon a time, Disney was all about making stuff that lasted, you know, that yeah. we're going to make this like this Pixar movie, you know, that you, in theory, you could watch monsters Inc a hundred years from now and it would still play because it's the basics. It, you know, 
uh, of the action and the character and everything. It, it's its own self-contained thing. Whereas so because everything's tied into these same few franchises, it's all it's all just of its time and it's of its it, it's an off it's the offspring of this weird fan ecosystem that is the product of social media and YouTube and all that, that is not hopefully still going to be a thing 50 years from now. But a lot of these movies, like people would have to watch them and say like, what am I, what am I watching? Why does this, why does this exist? I, I want to tie this into another, we don't have to be done with this section, but I want to talk about the fact that weird fact that so many movies seem to be written on the fly, like major trilogies. Um, and there was, of course, a J.J. Abrams interview where he said recently that he wished that the Star Wars trilogy was perhaps planned ahead. Um, and his the way he talked about it, he said sometimes it's an actor who comes in, other times it's a relationship that as written doesn't quite work. And things that you think are going to be so well received just crash and burn. And that's why he's talking about changing things. And that goes into the fandom where it's like they, they like literally will stop and look at the fandom and go, oh, we better change the direction this is going because people don't have it. Um, the question, I think the, the weirdness with that is we talk about how movies are planned so far ahead in certain ways. And this is what makes it so bizarre to me. They're planned so far ahead. Um, they're done by committee and yet they don't, they don't lock down the really important stuff, specifically the characters. Um, I want to talk about the fact that star Wars, uh, Lucasfilm has something called a story group. I had never heard of this before. The story group, it was formed by Kathleen Kennedy in 2020 it is headed like by um, someone named Kiri Hart. I looked her up. She has almost no credits as a writer. And these there's 11 people, most of which I've seen people track down, like don't really have writing credits. Um, and they're in charge of making sure the universe all fits. Um, the, way, the way they describe this is um, like they've heard pitches from people who have really good ideas and they're told to come back in six years because they're like, that's when that character is going to come in. So they have this like broad idea of where things are heading. They dictate it all, but the stuff they, they clearly don't care about is where the characters are heading. Cause there's this weird, and it's so it's, it's, you see it in a bunch. You see it in Jurassic world. You see it in the DC movies, obviously the Godzilla's where like, they clearly didn't have a plan and they keep course correcting based on fandom. Colin Trevorrow recently said um, that after, remember when in Jurassic World he killed off that character, Zara, and the internet was thought it was really brutal and dumb? Uh, and the reason the internet, the reason people were kind of upset about that is because he kills off this character in a brutal way and none of the other characters care. Like, it felt very crass. It was like, for some reason, no one liked Zara, and when she died, no one cared. Um, he recently said in an interview that he had learned his lesson, and he said, we make sure that every death was earned, and this is talking about the next Jurassic World. Everyone deserves their death in this movie, a lesson learned. In 2018, everyone earns it. 
horrible people. Um, what he's basically saying is that, oh, sorry, th- I think this was him talking about Fallen Kingdom. I'm not sure. Is that the lesson he learned is don't kill off anybody but bad, bad guys, which is the wrong lesson completely. Um, and it's a, such a weird course correction. And I guess that's what's that's what's bothering me so much is that the things that they are they they're able to course correct as they go are actually the most important parts about a movie, which is the characters. Um, I think a really good example of this is um, the ending of Force Awakens. If you remember, it ends with Rey holding out her lightsaber to Luke Skywalker, right? And they end it there because they hadn't written the script for the next movie. They weren't, they were, you know, it had been passed on to um, Ryan Johnson who was writing the script while he got like an early showing of um, uh, 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 Force Awakens. So he was writing it based on that. And if you remember at the beginning of, uh, I'm losing track of the names, The Last Jedi. Is that the one Ryan Johnson, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> at the at the beginning of that, Luke Skywalker throws the lightsaber away, right? And that's the thing that pissed people off. How much better would have it been if The Force Awakens ended on that beat? She hands him the, the lightsaber, he throws it away, cut to credits. That's such a more effective cliffhanger because then we know, oh my God, what is what is Luke Skywalker is quit? What's going on? But since they hadn't planned it in advance, he he basically was like, and then she meets Skywalker and something happens. Um, the, it's little things like that. Things with the characters that since they're not planning it in advance, they don't smooth out the way they should. Um, the idea, of course, of Rey being special in the first one, the reveal that she's not special is a great idea and then jj comes and goes well actually no she is special and of course the the there's like you can see the videos online of the audience just booing at that when she says i'm ray skywalker at the end because nothing in the film had led to that moment so they're they they plan ahead like the effects shots they say oh we want to bring boba fett back in this many years etc the things that they seem to make up as they go is the characters themselves and the importance of them. And that is just, that's such bad movie making. Right. And again, I, I worry that someone's going to listen to this entire series and say, well, too long didn't listen. Big corporations make soulless, heartless blockbuster movies, you know, who, who didn't know that. Right. What's interesting to me is, Digging into the fine details, movies, there is there are very different methods and processes now than there were even 30 years ago, let alone, you know, in the 80s. Um, that are, it makes these movies bad in a very specific way. Like, I get that there's always been trashy blockbusters. I get that there's always been cash grabs. What they're doing now when Disney owns 70% of the blockbuster movie-making capacity or whatever it is now that they own fox it's it's a huge amount there's a specific i don't even know the word it, it's almost like like a homogenized process where they're trying to take feedback and then incorporate it into this assembly line 
that it doesn't lend itself to that. Because again, a it's, corporation that you know, like if you're Taco Bell, I don't know why we keep bringing coming back to Taco Bell, but they're making like the Taco Bell equivalent of movies. You know, if Taco Bell notices that they're getting tons of orders on the tacos, people asking for them without the tomato, they'll eventually just stop putting the tomato on there. Like that, they get right. feedback back and they adjust it. It is very difficult to do that with art. It just is. It's the same thing if you're a band and everybody hates your latest album. You may see that the album didn't sell. When you listen to the fans telling you why they didn't like the album, I am telling you right now, they don't know why they didn't like the album. It's They don't know how to talk about music because they're not musicians. Like They're not going to know like why it didn't hit them the same way. Or they may say something broad like, well, the songs were too depressing or, or whatever. There wasn't enough guitar. But they're not going to be able to inform you what the next album should sound like. That's not what people want out of musicians. And in a perfect world, you would never try to do that with a movie where it's like, well, they're going to tell us. For example, in the Terminator franchise, which we've held up as an example of a franchise that started out very good in that it, they shockingly are just still making movies. There is no reason in the universe to keep bringing back Arnold Schwarzenegger into that, <laughs> into that no, franchise. No reason. From a story point of view, from a creative point of view, there are probably other things you can do with Terminator, but you don't, not really. But the business end that will want people want is more Arnold Schwarzenegger. One, I don't know that anybody's actually saying that. But two, once you've decided it's got to have Arnold Schwarzenegger in it, it's doomed because it's almost impossible to tell a story that makes sense or that continues that universe in an interesting way. They're just trying to shoehorn in a 78 year old Arnold Schwarzenegger into it. It, but it, there's somebody along the lines decide like, well, we tried to make a movie without him and it didn't do very well. It's like, well, was that the problem? Or was it because your right. movie didn't have any stakes knowing what we also know about this universe? It, like, it feels like they're always taking the wrong feedback. And the fact that the third Star Wars movie, after hearing all of the loud fans yelling about The Last Jedi and then trying to course correct... And making a movie that everyone hated even more, that should really tell them something, I feel like. It but it's won't. definitely going to be the wrong... Yeah, it'll be the wrong message. Because they're not... They're looking at it from the wrong perspective half of the time. The Of course, there's the Snyder Cut. Um, which is... This is where I think it, it's... It it gets really bad because executives were being like harassed um, over the Snyder Cut. You read interviews with any of the DC executives; they're clearly trying so hard to choose their words because they're all terrified of this one smaller toxic fan base that ended up winning, that demanded this Snyder Cut, and then they got it. Um. And that alone shows that they've learned completely the wrong lesson. The fact that they do seem to like say like, oh, a bunch of toxic fans are saying this stuff about this character. We should probably get rid of the character. Um, and the fact that they have time between to do that stuff. It's, it's such a like they've gotten a little bit better defending their actors. But John Boyega and Kelly Marie Tran, like they didn't get defended by Disney. 
Disney just stayed quiet about them. Uh, and of course, those actors have spoken up about that. It's just, it's such a, it, it feels like it's a problem with the internet in general, is that there's too much back and forth. There's certain things where it's like, maybe you don't need to listen to people. Um, and that is a big difference. Like, yes, they've always made bad movies. You know, people forget that, like, they made four Planet of the Apes sequels in the 70s. The difference is that if you go back and watch those, they at least seem to not be disjointed and they they are tonally the same. I'm not saying they're good, but you compare that to like the reboot where they did Rise of the Planet of the Apes and then they course corrected because they heard, you know, feedback from fans and then they made them like grittier and darker. And like there's a there's a disjointedness to them that makes them baffling in a new a new way. Like, I think that's what we're getting at is that a lot of like there's always been bad movies, but a lot of these movies are being affected scene by scene even. Uh, And it's making some of them like that they're going to be gibberish in the future. Yeah. And I know at least a large portion of them. Sorry. Well, I know they fear like the influencers and they fear, you know, the Mm -hmm. people can get a hashtag started like the, the Snyder cut thing or whatever but look we we work we have worked in the past on the internet and making internet content we saw what happens you get into a place where in order to continue keeping the lights on it's like you have to meet these baselines for traffic for ticket sales for whatever your ability to experiment and find the next cool thing is extremely stunted by that. You know, if you look at it, those of you old enough to remember the internet in the late nineties, early two thousands, like in the blogging era, there was tons and tons of people like experimenting with form and being very weird and unusual and things like that, or writing stuff in, in like a fictional voice that you couldn't do now. Because the way, you know, the traffic flow works, the way social media works, the way the, the, the eyeballs are delivered to your site, it's like, it gets down to it's like, no, only outrage and current events. Like we've, we've refined it down where there's these extremely narrow channels of stuff that succeeds. Right. And where it's like, and it's also in terms of volume, like you have to produce tons and tons and tons of it. And I feel like it's the same thing here where because movies cost so much to make and which is new again, this is not, it's like always been like this. This is not, this is completely different. Like even adjusting for inflation, movies cost 10 times what they used to. The risks you can take, like the idea that you can have a Marvel movie that just bombs completely like the the new the solo movie that came out that legitimately bombed like it did not make us money back. How much money did that make worldwide? Can you quickly? Are you in front of a computer where you can look that Which up? Which one? Solo. Solo. The solo story. Um, I'm looking it up right now. Uh, jeez. Just give me an answer. Just give me an answer. Opening it made eighty four million. Let's see. I'm looking for total though. Total uh, total worldwide. Oh, total total worldwide. 392. Yeah, million. so 400 million dollars. Yeah. Solo made 
$400 million. I want you to roll that number around in your head. It made $400 million. And it was a catastrophe that was like a grenade going off in the middle of the studio. They canceled all of the rest of their spinoff movies. Like, yeah. like the Obi-Wan was supposed to be a spinoff. There's supposed to be like a Jabba the Hutt spinoff movie. A Yoda, it, like all of that stuff has gotten rolled over to Disney Plus, the series, whatever. But it devastated. Like people were fired. They reorganized things. Like there were people working on these spinoff movies. Again, as we've established, well into pre-production planning, actual human beings with actual jobs who were sent home probably by the hundreds and effects studios that probably thought they had contracts lined up to do the effects work on the Obi-Wan spinoff movie or whatever that got shut down because it only made $400 million, not counting merchandise, not counting, you know, streaming rights, you know, home video, DVD is still a market, Blu-ray is still a market, not counting all that. This is just box office ticket sales that $400 million was a disaster. Now think about the place you've put yourself in creatively when that's considered a bomb. You are so boxed in at that point. You're at a point where you're trying to refine down to a like the Taco Bell level of taco. Like this is this the level of spice <laughs> that we know everyone in the world can eat. This is the exact texture of beef that we know everyone in the world will, it will tolerate. This is the softness of the tortilla that everyone in the world, like you have refined those elements down to such a fine point that you're creatively are just tinkering at the margins at that point. So the odds of people don't grasp how weird of a movie star Wars was in 1975. That is a, or what it was, 77, I guess. That's a weird movie. The studio did not want to release it. And they only did because they had sank the unfathomable amount of like $7 million into it at the time. Right. I was like, well, we got to make some of that back. We've spent an unholy amount of money on it. You know, and the, the back, like, the, they let this crazy person who had built up this resume of, of some smaller movies that did very well extremely well american graffiti was a monster hit and they turned him loose and they let him make this weird uh you know flash gordon knockoff that when they saw the dailies were like what in the hell is this why is there like a golden robot and he's kind of like flamboyant why is he acting like that what why is he talking (laughs) like that what is going on and now it's like, oh, well, of course Star Wars was great. It's got all the stuff people love. It's got Darth Vader. It's got. Do you know how weird Darth Vader was in 1977? Oh, yeah. If you watch like an original cut of Star... It's that realization. If you go back and you watch movies from that era, you're like, really, any of these could have been Star Wars. They're all like you look at you watch like the He-Man movie, uh, which I think it's it's more that Star Wars just came first. But they're all a bunch of crazy bullshit. It was just that that combination somehow captured everybody's imagination. Yeah. And so the idea that now, well, people won't pay to see it unless it's got Darth Vader in it, that unless it's got the lightsabers in it. It's like, okay, it, it, it you have to 
we had to suffer a bunch of bombs to stumble across Star Wars. They released a bunch of attempted Star Warses that didn't go anywhere, including the Flash Gordon movie that later came out. Like right. all these other swings and misses in order to get that home run. Disney is in a place where they can't have that swing and miss. If 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 the minimum is that it's got to be a double or or whatever, the way you have to play that is just so safe and so conservative that the model doesn't lend itself to taking big swings to the point that we're so delighted when a Thor Ragnarok comes along because it's like, man, this is so completely out of phase with everything else they're doing. It's so great that they gave him that kind of freedom to do like a pure comedy. That's true. But it's yeah, also it's, very much a crowd pleaser that has the famous faces in it. It's got the Hulk in it. Right. Our bar has been lowered where we're like, look how wild that movie is. And it's like, is it that wild though? Like it's, I'm, it's, it's the same as anything else. It's got giant battle scenes. It's got the Hulk fighting people. It's, it's got celebrities. It's, it's the same thing. It just feels a little fresher. Um, no, the, I, I, you reminded me of Bob Iger's uh, autobiography where he talks about how they bought Star Wars for over $4 billion. So when they made the first one, he told J.J. Abrams, we're making a $4 billion movie right now. And he wasn't wrong. Uh, and, and, and like that really puts it into perspective where it's like, yeah, why would they ever try something new? they're making a f- they're they just bought it for four billion dollars like it's the same with solo it's like yeah that cost 300 million dollars it only made 400 million shut it all down and that's wild because the problem with solo as we already talked about was that nobody wanted to see a han solo origin movie because that's what a new hope is like it's this fundamental issue on the writing level so they've compl- once again they completely missed the reason why solo didn't work and instead was like sh- we need to stop all our spin-offs because they're playing it so safe uh that they can't really they don't and there's so many people there's a committee there's this there's this story group of 11 people that like they just they they they're they want a sure thing or nothing yeah, and again, that is a great attitude to have if you're running an airline. Yeah. We want every flight to actually land. So we've got good, it takes thousands goal. of people to make a plane, it takes thousands more to design it, it takes air traffic controllers. It's like it takes this many people working together in concert in a process, you know, it takes years to get a new aircraft design off the ground. It's got all these levels of safety checks, all these filters. But we want to make sure that that plane can operate for 30 years and never crash. And airliners almost never crash. Like, it is remarkable. It takes a ton of people to do it. If you're running the airline, that is the exact right attitude to take. If you're running a fast food restaurant, you know that even one, like, outbreak of food poisoning can devastate your whole quarter. So you do everything you can to make sure that doesn't happen, that people do not. I have never gotten sick from Taco Bell, contrary to all of the endless tweets and stand-up routines it's I've you know I've never it's I've never gotten food poisoning Look, there. We're not, um, we're not, not to my knowledge. F- we're not sponsored by Taco Bell, but I'm not against that. 
<laughs> if Taco Bell wants to throw some money. Uh, so if you're I'm, running a, you know, a taco franchise and your goal is for the audience to enjoy every meal and then never get sick, yes, that is how you do it. You, that is not where you take risks. <laughs> it's like, well, let's just try Im- importing some beef from a, a, a gangster in <laughs> Russia who sold us a truckload of beef he found. Like, no, this is that's where you don't take any risk. When you're talking about art, even art that is made for mass audiences, please understand, after 12 hours of this podcast, surely the listeners understand, <laughs> I am not asking for these movies to all be Schindler's List. I am not asking them for it to be Oscar winners about two people, about two elderly people dealing with you know their dementia and how the world is left behind. I like trash. I, I write trash. But my novels are trashy. I am asking for better trash and they've created an environment where it's hard to make really interesting trash to where when you see something like Fury Road come along and then you see what went into making it, like how hard it was to get that made and how unlikely it was. And now that, you know, Disney owns Fox and then all of the subsidiary brands that you probably didn't even know were owned by Disney or Fox it feels like it's going to get harder and harder to make the really good, high-quality trash that I love. Like, I have no doubt somebody out there is making another Aliens movie. I have no faith that somebody out there is making the next Aliens, the thing that will Mm -hmm. make me feel the way I felt the first time I saw that Xenomorph, where where it's a a design, it's, it's a feel where it's just so distinct, I know James Cameron is trying to do it with Avatar. That personally didn't do anything for me. For me, the entire appeal there was in the 3D, which that effect is long, that novelty is long worn off for me. Um, but at least he's trying to do it. He's trying to make something that's a passion project. It's brand new. It's not based on something. I, I will give him that all day. It And Chris Nolan with Tenet. Tenet was yeah, that's yeah, not yeah. based on it's not based on a graphic novel. It's an idea he had. It's based on specific obsessions he has. All of our complaints with that. Hey, give him credit. He 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 is one of the few filmmakers, maybe the only one, getting those kind of budgets to make something that's not just you know that's not just, it's not another Batman movie. It's not whatever, which is what he could be doing. He could still be making Batman's. Yeah, that's the thing. Is like. For all, like I was saying that about Shyamalan is like for all their faults, they are at least taking these very interesting and big swings. Nolan's a great example of that because he's like the only person allowed to do that stuff. He's one of the few people who gets sells tickets based on his name, uh, and we just don't see that as much anymore. I know that the, and I'm I'm not even going to try to pronounce the director's name of the Dune movie. Uh, he's another one, and I always say it wrong. Movies. I feel like it's less offensive for me to not try. I, I may be wrong about that. Maybe I should, <laughs> because I, I there's something I'm very bad with those pronunciations. But that's a case where I've got a feeling that the Dune movie is going to lose a lot of money. I just feel it coming. Well, the Blade Runner sequel also made lost a lot of money, and. Yeah, I want I want to talk about that in incorporation with all of this, which is that there there are still like movies that like I think they greenlit the Dune, knowing it wasn't going to make a lot of money. 
I think there's still people in like I think it's a big mistake to think that studio executives even don't want to make art. People still like making movies that matter. Um, it's just very hard to do it now. Uh, so you have something like Blade Runner where Ridley Scott and I believe it's Denis Villeneuve. I always, I always fuck it up. Um, had a good idea and like no one was scrambling for a Blade Runner and they made it or it's the same with Dune where he's like I want to do Dune and they're like okay I don't yeah I don't think that movie's gonna make any money but I think there were people who greenlit it knowing that of being like we want to make like there's still that feeling of we want to make stuff for the Oscars you know Uh, and people love the idea of making like epics like Lord of the Rings Um, and it's very rare to get both a giant epic and an Oscar-worthy film in the same movie. Uh, so there are, I don't know, I think there are still people doing that, but because of this whole system we're talking about, I think this all comes down to the the top-down thinking that's coming with a lot of these, which is that... Um, and this is sort of another section, but like talking about how Lucas Lucasfilm costs $4 billion and they're like, we're making a $4 billion movie. They know going into that, like we bought Star Wars, we're going to make as many Star Wars as we can. Or when Alex Kurtzman um, came to CBS and they gave him Star Trek, they said to him, we need this many shows. We, we're, we want you to develop a series of shows. Um, do we have an idea for the shows? Doesn't matter. Kurtzman had an interview where he said, like, I want to do something with Picard. He didn't know what. He didn't know if it mattered. Patrick Stewart had said he never wanted to play the role again. Um, and that story had been uh, wrapped up. It had been told. Yeah. It had been wrapped up in the original series. Like, even the movies that came after really shouldn't have existed. Right. And so it's it's definitely, like, two ways of thinking. I do... Th- I do think there are yeah people like christopher nolan and stuff who still i don't i don't know i don't know how christopher nolan thinks of his movies but like or like thinks up the ideas but you know he he has his own problems obviously but there are people who are making movies from the idea of i i want to make this movie not we have to make this movie right yeah oh it's just that and we would just to to be extra clear Anybody out there that says there's no good movies being made anymore, that's those are people who are not looking very hard. I just yeah. watched a movie on Netflix last night about terrorists taking over an airliner, and then it turns out one of the hostages is a vampire. It is fantastic. Oh, I can't wait to watch that movie. Yeah, yeah that looks so good. Called Blood Red Sky, I believe is the name of right. it. Right. Uh, and that's not even like a smart premise. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't have to be an art house film. No, but it is expertly executed from the performances to the way the staging of the action and the budget was probably microscopic compared to even what you think of as like a mid-range Hollywood movie. Right. With the way effects that can be done now where one person on a PC can make some really good-looking effects if they've got the skill and and they, they know how to do it, there are small movies being made that look really good. And there are TV shows that look better than the blockbusters looked in the the 80s. We are about to, on Amazon, get a 
Lord of the Rings series that has a budget of $450 million yeah. for one season I, of like, what, 10 episodes, something like that? I do think that's an example of results-based where someone clearly was like, we need to make, we have this property, we need to make something. We need to make a Game of Thrones because Game of Thrones is dead. We need the next Game of Thrones. But yeah. hey, I am telling you right now, the idea that a, a show like Westworld that cost what Westworld cost like, I get it. A lot of people disappointed in it in the recent seasons. is not as good or, or whatever. I'm not a huge fan of it. But the fact that a show like that that looks that good can exist as a TV show, the fact that a show like The Mandalorian. Like, if you went back to Star Wars, young me in 1980s, whatever. I just finished the Star Wars trilogy. And I said, what Star Wars look like in the future? And you said, well, there's a TV show you can watch on your television called The Mandalorian, and it looks like this, and people generally love it, I would have been thrilled. You showed me Baby Yoda right. Baby Yoda back then. It's like, oh, my God, I've got to have one of those Baby Yodas, I would have said. So do not – we're not trying to complain too loud here. The amount of content being made, the amount of movies being made, the amount of shows being made, I mean, good God, but all those streaming services, there are so many shows in production now. It has exploded. It is like a – a graph of the number amount of stuff being made looks like if you see one of those graphs of the world population over time and it just shoots straight up. That's the ecosystem we're in right now. A lot yeah. of the problems we've called out is the fact that Disney knows they're not competing with other movies. They're competing with Minecraft. They're competing right. with Netflix. They're competing with somebody sitting down and watching Twitch for eight straight hours, and they're going to watch a guy play video games for a while and just hang out and do that instead of watching their movie. So the very constricted way, you know, they're having to kind of iron out the creativity out of it because the creativity is happening elsewhere where you've got people, you know, making shows for YouTube or making horror shorts for YouTube that – you know, it, my complaint is that there's a pipeline where a lot of these creators who are making small, cool movies, what happens is they simply get hoovered up into the Disney, <laughs> the Disney sausage factory, and where their future is going to be, like, okay, this is like I, I people, I'm sure love the the Venom movies with Tom Hardy. I, I know it, it, they've gotten a good reaction. They're kind of weird. It sucks to lose Tom Hardy to yes. that because he was Absolutely. an incredibly interesting actor. I do not doubt at some point that Mads Mikkelsen will become just action movie villain or Marvel villain at some point, like a, that or, or Star Wars thing, will permanently will be in some giant franchise and cash in. The movies he made in Denmark, uh, all of which you can find on Netflix or Amazon, like every movie he makes is interesting. Every movie right. he's Sometimes. In. I th always think about the director of Downfall, which was that Hitler meme movie. Uh, everybody loved that one scene where Hitler gets mad. But that movie is terrific. Um, and that director was then brought to America and made the Invasion of the Body Snatchers remake. Um, <laughs> he had clearly been like given to a studio and they're like, we love it. Will you do this? That movie bombed. He then went back to Germany and now he's just making movies again <laughs> like there are directors who are like okay never mind and they go back so coppola coppola still makes movies that no one watches but he's still making movies um and there's it, it's it's that thing where it's like 
it sucks that you either have to make the things the studios want or be poor, you know? Like uh, there was a, there was a good time for certain directors. Now it's like maybe like five directors, you know, it's like Tarantino and Spike Lee and you know, uh, uh, like Nolan, like there's few directors who get to do the things they want to do, but mid budget is so hard to do. If you have a high concept, like a Terry Gilliam, it's hard to make a Terry Gilliam film. Those cost money, but not enough people watch them. Um, the Mandalorian, by the way, came to be because John Favreau brought the idea to Kathleen Kennedy, which again goes into the idea that no one was like, we need to make a Mandalorian show. Let's figure it out. John Favreau had the idea and that happened to fit with what, you know, Disney wanted and so on and so forth. Um, that is, uh, we haven't talked about that enough, the, the death of the mid-budget film, because that's a big problem, is that movies just can't cost like $60 million anymore. Uh, correct. Or even, if you go and look at like the top 10 movies, there's this huge shift where if you're looking in the 1980s, it's always, you know, it's like Rocky 2, Beverly, Beverly Hills Cop 2, yeah. Rambo. And if you go back to the 70s, like the number one movie of the year is like Kramer versus Kramer. Or a right. movie about these two people getting a divorce or The Godfather or, you know, it, it's and I get that like sequels, that's not new, that, that the idea that sequels make money, that became an 80s and a 90s thing. But at some point, the middle class of movies, people don't realize this, where you can make a movie on, like you said, 50 or 60 million dollars. And then it would make in the box office, maybe it makes back $50 million, but that's okay because home video used to be huge. Right. DVD used to be a big, big part of like where they knew they were going to make their money back. Well, streaming is not the same as DVD. The amount you get for your movie getting dumped to Netflix is microscopic compared to what when you used to be able to either sell DVDs for 20 bucks a piece or they would go to Blockbuster and then they give you a cut of every single rental. And people are literally paying, you know, $6 to watch it. And then you get a, a cut of the six bucks forever. The the finances, basically, that's why it kind of filtered down to where you have to have an ultra mega Blockbuster. Or it's got to be a tiny movie that, you know, that you made on, on $5 million. Because yeah. I don't know if people realize, like you mentioned Quentin Tarantino. That Pulp Fiction, I think, had a budget of some, something like $7 million, something like that. Mm. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood had a budget of $100 million. Right. They're still swinging for the fences. That's the thing is like everything is, yeah, everything is designed to for the theater experience now. They need to make all their money back in the theater or not at all. Uh, they need to have a, a, a wild like giant cinematic universe or or nothing at all like you can't just put out a single movie it has to be oh what is what kind of franchise is this going to be a part of yeah um unless again you mentioned horror is the one place where they kind of went back to movies that that are made for 10 or 15 million dollars that are you know it's a haunted house movie they tend to be small they tend to be compact where it's like they showed even, a different way, where it's like, well, you know for a fact you're going to make a profit off this. Right. Even horror, though. The Conjuring 2 is a incoherent film because they're trying to create a cinematic universe. That's one of the things also 
with the top down is everybody's trying to make a cinematic universe even genres that shouldn't have them um they introduced i think annabelle and the nun and the 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 crooked man in that movie uh and it becomes like like when you go and watch the tom cruise mummy movie they like forget that to make it a movie because they're too busy trying to create a cinematic universe because again it's them going in and being like we need this to be 10 more films uh that's why we're investing this money same with star wars but star wars was more of a sure thing we we're investing four billion dollars we need to have a whole series out of this um you know the mummy they're like we bought tom cruise this has to be a larger thing uh and I think that's what it is, is that it's not enough just to make one big budget, really good movie. They're planting a franchise no matter what, or at least most of the time, because they know that they can't even make their money back with that one movie. They have to make their money back with merchandising and, and later releases and maybe TV shows, because as you said, like home video like video sales they they don't exist anymore dvd sales um a movie can't just be its own singular film so i guess in time kind of trying to wrap it up which i guess we should start to do at this point yeah yeah as a viewer as an audience as a consumer i know you're probably tired of creators saying this but if you see someone making something you believe in, it's got the themes you enjoy, it's got the type of casting you want, it, you know, if you care about diversity, you care about any of those things, being willing to support it with money yeah. <laughs> matters a lot. Because is, is, you're in an ocean of content, and it's very easy to get the sense that content is free. Because... You can click on YouTube right now and watch videos for the next billion years and never run out of videos on YouTube. And it's all free. It's tough to, to tolerate a pre-roll ad. Some of you have ad blockers and you're not even seeing those. So the idea that you turn on Netflix and, and a show like it's just there, it's all there. It's all free all the time but for one low monthly payment. I'm telling you, if there's a movie you really enjoyed, you really loved spending money spending some of your hard-earned entertainment budget on seeing that thing in the theaters or actually buying it on amazon prime instead of you know waiting now it didn't have to be amazon whatever platform has it whatever evil corporation is streaming the movie <laughs> paying to see it and actually putting your money where your tastes are it's hard to do because in this environment like the idea of Paying for an album seems weird when Spotify exists. The idea, the idea of paying twenty dollars to watch a movie, for I will say this myself: it is rare I will do that. But I will right. do it if it's a franchise that I really believe in. I des, I def, you know, I desperately want to see more of it. Boy, that is how that is really the only language Hollywood speaks. So if there's it's hard, yeah, and again. It, Money is tight. Everybody's got, you know, it, you're being pulled in a bunch of different directions in terms of where that money goes. But if you can do that, if you can do the expensive option, you can buy the book, buy the album, buy the movie, buy the the, the show or whatever with actual money. That's really all the, and tell people about it. Like that's, 
That's what you can do that makes a difference. All the all of the complaining online won't matter as long as the, all of the money is flowing into these same few franchises. It's hard to think of a call to action because, yeah, if you're someone who is unhappy, like if you're happy with blockbusters, then I guess don't listen to us. Keep doing what you're doing. You're doing great. But if if you do feel like like the going to like if you if you haven't had a reason to go to a theater in a very long time that's not just pandemic related um yeah that is what you have to do you have to raise the bar a little bit like i think because there's so much content it's easy for us to just accept things now where it's like oh they made this movie well it's free right there on on netflix it's right there it's on disney plus um but I think people need to expect more. Like, fandoms should expect more from uh, these movies as well. And yeah, it really comes down to what you what you choose to pay for. Like, that's that's what these companies uh, notice more than anything else. So I don't know. I don't know if there's a solution. You know. I think it might just naturally, some of this might naturally just burn out and we'll hit, hit the reset button. And then there'll be a new type of movie, uh, much like the way Westerns went away, you know? And then we'll start complaining about those new movies after a while. Yeah. that's Because they'll become a problem. I guess the only thing I wish that the, the people who need to hear this are not listening to this podcast, but... Mm-hmm. If you want to feel the way you felt when you were 10 years old again, one, if you want to watch those old movies, just go watch those old movies. Yeah. Please, whoever is telling Hollywood that they need to keep remaking the same thing or or just like, oh, well, you clearly liked Aladdin and you saw Aladdin when you were 10 years old and were mesmerized by it. Clearly what you want is a live action Aladdin starring Will Smith. It's like whoever is sending that signal to Hollywood, please stop because yeah, that's what you want is the next thing that will make you feel the way you felt when you saw Aladdin. You do. That is not Aladdin again. Aladdin will never make you feel like that again. It's you've, you've already felt like that. You want the next thing. And I'm telling you, there's a really good chance that the next thing that will make you feel that sense of wonder it exists. It's just that it may be buried in a streaming service or it may not be in English. It, you know, it may be an action yeah, film. Yeah, you made might have in, to look for it. In uh, Indonesia that will make you feel like you felt the first time you saw The Matrix or the first time you saw whatever your favorite thing is. It's out there. But having going out and seeking out the things will make you feel wonder again instead of yelling at Hollywood to give you Ghostbusters again and to somehow make you feel the way you felt when you saw Ghostbusters the first time, Hollywood cannot do that for you. That's actually impossible. Also, I think you kind of nailed something that's like a hard and fast rule. Just don't see live-action Disney remakes, period. Like, I know some of them are going to look good, um, and some of them might be good. Let's just stop seeing them. That's a little thing we can do, right? Like, maybe it already feels... No, they're they're doing remakes again. They're doing Snow White, I think, next. But, like, 
maybe they shouldn't be allowed to just redo shot for shot cartoons you love and then make a billion dollars. I don't know. Guys, we, we, listeners, we do understand out there are harried single moms with four kids they're trying to keep entertained for two hours and keep them quiet Absolutely. Absolutely. they are they are happy to drag them to the theater and sit them and be able to sit in a quiet air-conditioned theater for two hours and know that the kids will stare at the screen and that they do not have the connoisseurs taste that we're approaching it with because they just want to go sit and have the kids be quiet for two hours and eat some popcorn. Just, I get it. No, they they simply have to explain to their children that the movie they want to see is a cash grab, and the children will totally understand. Some somewhere, <laughs> somewhere right now, there's a parent with a six year old. Yeah. Like, do you think that I've seen Frozen two hundred and forty times <laughs> because I like it? But Frozen, I'd say, isn't part of the problem. Frozen is actually, um, you know, an original Disney movie. But yes, I understand that uh, being a parent, you don't have this much control. Uh, I, 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 get, I, I try to be easier on like shitty kids' movies for that reason, where it's like kids are dumb. Uh, yeah. Like they'll, they're going to see the Trolls movie, and what are you going to do? Not see it? You know, you're going to go see it. Yeah, and somewhere there's like a 45-year-old guy who's made like a, an hour-long YouTube breakdown of why the Trolls 2 movie was bad. <laughs> it's like, okay, <laughs> who do you think this right. is for? You think it's for you? You think it's, right. this is derivative trash. It's like, okay, yeah. The, I'm sure the <laughs> seven-year-olds in the audience are sitting there, like they're giggling their heads off at the funny Trolls bouncing around. I'm sure they're saying that like, wait a second, this is derivative. <laughs> okay. I mean, this is all pretty low stakes. Nothing matters. They're movies, so. No. I mean, I don't mean to take away everything we've done, but. No, art art matters. It does. Art it, this does is matter, art, yeah. and art that is intended to be seen by a billion people. I do think it matters. I do. This is why, and I hope that we didn't. The whole thing now, like some people, where there's like two kinds of YouTube breakdowns of blockbusters, either A, Here's 27 logical inconsistencies we found. Or it's like, well, this movie promotes bad morals. Both of those are kind of silly. Like, But at the same time, art matters. The type of art we are exporting around the globe, it, it matters. It matters to people. Yeah. It defines childhoods. I, I never, as a creative person, like it. We're, it's true we're not curing cancer. But I do feel, feel like something's been lost. I don't know. It's so cliche to say that, well, movies are corporate now, but it, they literally are more corporate now. That's a, that, that is a fact. And it is, it is true that stuff like Star Trek like have inspired you know, future generations of scientists yes. and other artists. And the fact that these major movies, like it is, it is really saddening how mediocre these movies are knowing that they're going to be the things that people will have to be raised on and will have to be inspired by. And I don't think a lot of these movies are thinking hard enough about what message they're telling people or what creatively they're inspiring. And that's the problem is that a movie like Jurassic Park, the original can actually inspire people Whereas I don't think 
the last Star Wars with its message of you need special blood to do anything. I don't think that's going to inspire anybody either, either artistically or just in their life. And that's what it is. There's, there's a mediocrity there that, I don't know. It, it's a, it makes me sad. It's a shame. Are we really going to end the the series on you saying it's a shame? I can't think of any other way to sum it up, though. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Uh, I guess something about uh, a joke about Taco Bell. I mean, I really want Taco Bell now. We've been talking about it for way too long. It's all I can think about now. It's it's blinded everything. Like, like I am going to make the next decisions I make are going to be how I can get Taco Bell. Everything will be based around that. Yes. And, like, I don't think they're even a good company. I'm pretty sure people have, like, I think, like, Taco Bell did, like, they, they like, supported Trump or something. Like, I don't I think don't, they're a sound company. It's one of those. Uh, it it doesn't matter. <laughs> I need it in my mouth. And I like, like how you can just say something like Taco Bell probably supported Trump or something. It's probably true. <laughs> no, I meant I, 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 probably I literally no. have no idea. It's, it's I part think of there the, was some internet thing about that. Is it still owned by Pepsi? Like, isn't the same company owned Kentucky know, Fried man. Chicken and Taco Bell and all of them? But yeah, that's the world we're in. It, it's you know that the I've not had I a do, bad okay. meal from Taco Bell. I don't think. I don't think I've ever yeah. had a meal that didn't instantly like improve my mood. Uh, yeah, you know. I think okay. I have I have a way to tie this up. Actually, is like there are probably chefs out there hearing us talk about Taco Bell who are very mad. I I my sister likes Jurassic World, right? And I got mad at that fact, and it basically came down to her being like, "Yeah, I like the dinosaurs. It's fun." And you can't argue with that. <laughs> She's not wrong. And I think that's what it is, is that like we we spend so much of our lives thinking about movies that we're we're more obsessed with it. But honestly, like if you're just getting joy from movies, then they're doing a good job. Right. Ultimately. Yeah. Um, and they would say that's so, what that's what they're doing. This is why when Michael yeah. Bay is confronted by some reporter who gets mad at him, he's like, I make movies for teenage boys. Put me in jail. Right. Like, it's, and it is it is. Yeah, it is something to keep in mind when talking about this stuff is that all this doom saying about movies, it's it's if it's making people happy, if there are people who are inspired by it, then good for them, you know? Yeah. Uh, then it's doing its job. And I guess it's, I don't know, a matter of perspective with that. Yeah. But at the same time, a corporation, they literally are going to give you the bare minimum they can. <laughs> and get by. Yeah. So at some point, whatever you can do to support things with your dollar that, that shows, if you're listening to this and you feel the same as we do, these movies are not built to like stand the test of time in any way. Put your money. Like I go and see blockbusters. Like there's a reason why all of these movies we've mentioned are movies I've seen and can talk about. I saw them because everybody else saw them. You know, it's yeah. I've seen Jurassic World. I I of course I did. Everybody saw it. Everybody was talking about it. That perpetuates this whole thing because it's like, well, yeah, yeah, we want something where we can all be talking about the same movie this week, and so we're all going to go see it, even though and we're all going to be mad about it, but. 
mad, you know, hate dollars spend the same as as love dollars. So the studio mm-hmm. doesn't care. It's like, oh, all the people watched this. They only watched it ironically. It's like, well, fine. It works. We don't care. Yeah. It's like that's you know that's why they still uh, make bad Nicolas Cage movies when they could, as we now know, could be making good Nicolas Cage movies. It's because we went and saw them ironically, and it's like, well, what? Do we, why should we bother making the good ones? Right. Yeah, it's. I think I feel like it's why M Night Shyamalan makes the movies he makes. I think he pitches like a beach that makes you old, and some producers like that's so dumb. We have to absolutely need to make it. Yeah, it's going to um, be a disaster, and everybody's yeah, going to be talking it, about it for the next year after it comes out. Exactly, get it to us for under X amount of money, and we will be It'll fine. Be great. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, that's a good place to end. Everybody, check out old. Everybody, go see old. That's the that's all of this wrapped in to that. That's that's the conclusion. He chose the most hilarious title he could possibly. <laughs> even calling the movie "The Beach That Makes You Old" would be less funny than just calling it <laughs> "old" in all caps. It's it's based off a comic that's called Sandcastle, and it's like, well, that's a better name. Yeah, because it's uh, got the symbolism of like the water washing the sandcastle away, and it's temporary, yeah. and it's about the nature of passage of time. No, the movie is called "Old." <laughs> Oh, and ah, you're going to go see it because you think it's going to be stupid. Right. And by the time you listen to this podcast, it probably isn't even in theaters anymore. But whatever. Old is timeless. You will now find it on FXX Ultra, <laughs> the streaming service, the spinoff streaming service from FX that airs original right. movies or something. Uh, all right, Jason, you got to plug some stuff. Before yes, I am now writing at Substack, jasonpargin.substack.com. It's just a blog that you can also have emailed to you if you want. The last book, as always, when I come on here, is called Zoe Punches the Future in the Dick. It is a sci-fi novel. Look at the user ratings on Amazon. They are very positive. Don't take my word for it. Of course, I will say it's good. I directly profit from people buying it. Go go look at the reviews from other people. Take take their word for it. See what strangers have said. People on the mm-hmm. internet are not shy about saying when they don't like something. <laughs> the response <laughs> to my books, all five of my books, have been pretty strong. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I guess I'm going to plug our Patreon, patreon.com, slash Gamefully Unemployed. If you go on there, you find exclusive podcasts like Tom and Jeff Watch Batman and Fox Mulder is a Maniac and Star Trek The Next Futurama. They're all there, uh, all for $5 a month. We also watch movies with our patrons every Friday night. Uh, we do not watch good movies. We, we often watch movies like the ones we've been talking about in this podcast series because they're more fun to watch in a group. Anyway, that's it. I, I, think, I think we can rest, right? And now it's Taco Bell time.